It is Friday, December 1st, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. And I'm Matthew Moore. Today, a rooftop garden is in the works at Baptist Health Fort Smith. They have set aside 3,000 square foot uh, on top of one of their facilities here in Fort Smith to build this rooftop garden. They say it's the first of its kind in Arkansas and just one of 25 nationwide. Plus, a documentary filmmaker expands on two short films made while at John Brown University in Siloam Springs. The first one centers around the queer experience at Christian universities, specifically at John Brown University. And a shared Shakespearean universe. Juliet is like telling Hamlet about what her and Romeo did, and it's him it's him being very like, wow, you were wow, you were so brave to actually just do something that crazy. First the news from NPR. Support for KUAF comes from Little Wing, presenting Old Crow Medicine Show at the City Auditorium in Eureka Springs, Saturday, January 20th. Reserve tickets go on sale this Friday at tickets.thundertix.com. Walton Arts Center's Starlight Jazz Club presents Tierney Sutton, Saturday, December 2nd. This jazz vocalist and producer is known for her arrangements, scatting, and swinging style, and will play alongside her trio with a selection of traditional jazz arrangements and holiday tunes. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, December 1st, 2023. That's right. I said December. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF in Fayetteville. Joining me on the phone from his office in Fort Smith is Michael Tilley of Talk Business and Politics. Michael, welcome to December. We're here. Yeah, well, I didn't. That didn't take long. It was January a couple weeks ago. Right? <laughs> I know. I know. Listen, you're talking to a guy who had a brand new baby in May, and uh, oh, this this year has flown by, to say the least. Yep. Yeah, when they say when you have a baby, they say the days are long and the years are short. So, yes. So, get used to it. Yes, absolutely. Well, speaking of things that are short, uh, we're seeing a shortage or a decline in the home sales in the Fort Smith metro area. Uh, we are looking at uh, values down 15% through October. Yes, and it, this is something that began late last year uh, when those interest rates, as everybody knows, and those interest rates started um, going up significantly. But um, through October in the Fort Smith metro, there have been uh, 2,776 homes sold. That's down 16.3%. Um, and the value of those homes sold was $610.5 million. That was down 15%. We get these numbers from Ashley Milton. Uh, she's an executive broker with Chuck Fawcett Realty uh, in Fort Smith and Northwest Arkansas. But So she's gracious to provide these. But, yeah, we're, we're uh, seeing what we've seen all year, just an ongoing decline. People are holding on to their homes, I think, me and my wife are one of those folks who were thinking about kind of downsizing, moving, but with the interest rates, it's just, it doesn't make sense right now. So I think a lot of people are in that boat. And in, in Sebastian and Crawford County are the two largest counties in the metro. And Sebastian County home sales totaled in the first 10 months totaled uh, 1,239. That was down nine, almost 20%, 19.1%. And uh, Crawford County home sales total 521 down just under 19%. So the real hit in the metro area is is from those two most active counties. So 
uh, which makes sense. It's where the the you know you kind of run into the, lar- the law of large numbers. So they're it's bringing the totals down. But people are just they're either not buying a new home, they're continuing to rent, or instead of selling the home they're in now and upsizing or downsizing, they're just holding on to it. So and those aren't the only factors at play, but they're two of the most influential factors from the realtors from Ashley. I talked to another realtors um, and we probably won't see this change until interest rates start to moderate. And, and we're coming off what were two pretty healthy years. For example, uh, 2021 was a record when there were 4,400 homes sold in the region. So uh, despite the COVID pandemic in 2020 and 2021 were just record, just gangbuster years in terms of home sales activity. And that is really as, as the number shows, come to a screeching halt this year. As I spoke to Dr. Janine Perry uh, earlier this year about the Arkansas poll, the thing that uh, was the most important issue facing people in Arkansas today, polling-wise, showed the economy. And one of the things that she talked about was when she heard from folks who were giving examples of what it was that they were most uh, was the most important issue. She mentioned specifically that that uh, home interest rates and mortgage rates were one of the things that people were saying in Arkansas was something that uh, they were concerned about. Yes, and I can see that now. One of the things to keep in mind is though that the rate that we're up to historically, I think we were kind of spoiled in the last ten years or so. The rates were, I won't say abnormally low, but. Historically, they were some of the lowest levels they've been in decades. So I think we've become a little spoiled. But you know, if you bought a home at three or two and a half percent interest or three and a half percent interest, you know, if you're looking at seven to seven and a half now, unless you just have to sell the home or you, unless you just have to buy the home, it really takes the incentive away from making that making that uh, transaction. For the first time all year, Fort Smith's share of the Sebastian County sales tax uh, was down compared to uh, last year's numbers. Uh, we're seeing more rates uh, declining. And uh, and as you said right before we hit record, you kept wondering when this was going to finally stop growing. And maybe we've hit that point. Yeah. So, and I, I wish maybe at some point an economist or a group of economists or researchers will look more in depth at Arkansas, not just Fort Smith, but sales tax collections around the state to see the impact because they've been doing very well here in Northwest Arkansas around the state, sales tax revenue. It'd be interesting to see how much of that is consumer spending increase and how much of that is inflation. I have the same question now. The 1% Sebastian County sales tax in this October report was down just under a percent, 0.55%. Uh, compared to October 2022. So are we spending less? Because uh, inflation, if you look at the inflation numbers, they've come down considerably in the last 12 months. Uh, I know some in some political circles, they still like to harp on inflation. Uh, and it's still not good in some places, but overall, it's a lot better than it was 12 months ago. So are we seeing reduced consumer spending or are we just seeing spending uh, on reduced prices? But nevertheless, <laughs> no matter what it, it it accounts to reduce revenue for the city. What we kind of look at closely is the city's share of the 1% Sebastian County sales tax because that goes into the general fund, helps pay for fire, police, some other general, you know, important general services. For the first 10 months, that tax collected $20.6 million. That's up 5.4% compared to last year. So it's still very robust. 
uh, and last year was very robust gains. Even if it slows down in these last two reporting months, it's probably still going to set a record for revenue collections. Um, the city's the city's 1% street tax has collected a little over 25 million for the year, and that's up four and a half percent. So, um, no nobody's crying in their sales tax revenue uh, coffer, but it, this is kind of the first sign of I don't know if normalization is the right word, but it's we're seeing that three, four, five, six percent gains. We're seeing that kind of moderate. Well, finally, we want to end on a high note, and we're going to go way up high on the roof of the (laughs) Baptist Health Fort Smith building. Uh, They're working on reducing food insecurity, and the idea is to create and maintain a rooftop garden. Yeah, so I'm kind of, um, and maybe in the spirit of full disclosure, I'm probably a little bit more inclined to think this is a cool story because I have a daughter um, who works at Apple Seeds up there in, in Fayetteville, and I have another daughter who volunteers in college with some similar food uh, availability programs. But Baptist Health, they have set aside 3,000 square foot uh, on top of one of their facilities here in Fort Smith to build this rooftop garden. They say it's the first of its kind in Arkansas and just one of 25 nationwide. Um, but they're planting uh, different crops of fruits and vegetables the initial focus of the program, we've been told, is to work with some of their patients who they identify as maybe being food insecure. And so when they when their families check out or when they have contact with them, they have a process to provide them, you know, food, uh, fruits and vegetables. And they say once the uh, garden, you know, because, uh, you know, we all know that different crops, different fruits grow in different cycles. But once the um, garden is fully producing, they estimate it can provide a, a 1,500 meals a day. That is, that is great. I mean, that is not an insignificant number. Uh, unfortunately, the Fort Smith Metro, for all of the things that it's got going for it, hospital officials say that the food insecurity in the Fort Smith Metro is about 40 times greater than the national average. So they are kind of stepping up and um, trying to address that. One of the things that this is not a negative, it was just an observation, when I see these kind of stories, I, I, my first thought is great. That's cool. That's, but then my other thought is, why aren't we doing more of this? Why is this? It would be nice if this wasn't so unique. But kudos to the folks at Baptist Health Fort Smith. Also, the River Valley Master Gardeners were very instrumental in, in working with Baptist Health Fort Smith to make this happen. So kudos to them as well. We're going to kind of stay on top of this. You know, I know it's not F-35 jets coming to Fort Smith. And, <laughs> multi-million dollar consent decree, but we're going to kind of continue to watch this to see the process, see how it plays out, because I just, I think this is one of those things that could have a big impact on uh, the lives of thousands of people in the metro. You can find all of this reporting and so much more on Talk Business and Politics website, talkbusiness.net. Michael Tilley, we will talk to you next week. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Hey, I, I appreciate you, sir. The U of A's Outdoor Recreation Incubator, better known as GORP, is due for a growth spurt. Soon, small businesses across the state will have better access to the program, thanks to federal and state funding. Ozarks at Large Jack Travis has more. The University of Arkansas's Greenhouse Outdoor Recreation Program is about to undergo a statewide expansion. 
the Outdoor Center Small Business Incubator received a $1.2 million grant from the U.S. Economic Development Administration to expand the program services to businesses throughout Arkansas. GORP is a startup incubator designed to support businesses breaking into the outdoor recreation industry. The new statewide GORP AR program will target communities near four state parks that Governor Sanders' Natural State Initiative designated as Economic Opportunity Zones. Those parks include Queen Wilhelmina State Park near Mina, Moralton's Petty Jean State Park, Pinnacle Mountain State Park near Little Rock, and the Delta Heritage Trail State Park in West Helena. The state government is matching funds with the EDA grant. Now, GORP has over $2 million to grow the program. Phil Shellhammer is the Senior Director of Business Incubation for the Greenhouse Program. He says receiving the grant bodes well for the future of outdoor recreation in the state. This doesn't happen without our state government stepping up and saying outdoor recreation is important for the entire state, right? Um, The Natural State Initiative work that was done earlier this year in that council and the effort from our governor and all of the, the pieces come to play, along with funding from the Walton Family Foundation for our current GORP program, has allowed for this, this to work out timing-wise perfectly for us. And so we've got a really good program. We've got a state that's interested in really funding and supporting outdoor recreation. And now we've got a mechanism with this funding to be able to go and help entrepreneurs literally run our state. I, I think we're on the brink of, well, I hope we're on the brink of, Uh, a much larger cluster of outdoor recreation companies forming, building, and growing within the state of Arkansas. GORP is already going strong in northwest Arkansas. The program came about in the summer of 2021 after the U of A received a grant from the Walton Charitable Support Foundation to stimulate the outdoor industry in the region. The program just wrapped up working with its third semesterly cohort and is now accepting applications for the spring semester. Shellhammer says news of the grant has excited small businesses across the state. We've seen more applications up here, actually, um, from, from other parts of the state than we have in the past. So our, our applicant pool for that cohort has actually grown quite a bit. Um, but the truth is it's awfully early for the individual pieces that we're going to do um, in these individual towns uh, to have a lot of feedback yet. Uh, next week, I head down to the Little Rock area, and I'll be meeting with a couple of our partners down there to start that, uh, that initial conversation. Um, we've got the plan in place when we were writing the grant, but now we need to get to the, the brass tax details of like, here's how it's going to play out. And so we'll start those conversations as early as next week. For more information about the GORP program, you can visit the Office of Entrepreneurship and Innovation's website or check out our previous reporting on this semester's cohort. Out of the Bruce and Ann Applegate Studio One, I'm Jack Travis. This is Ozarks at Large. While attending John Brown University, McKenna Kofer made a pair of short documentaries, including one called Part of the Kingdom. The film examined being queer at a Southern Christian college. Now based in Manhattan, McKenna is working on a feature-length documentary with the same title, and this fall received a grant from Campus Pride to further that effort. This week, I reached McKenna by phone to ask about the project. McKenna says, Part of the Kingdom listens to vulnerable queer members who find themselves at the mercy of religious colleges, often forcing them from their collegiate community or forcing them into the closet. McKenna says the current work is very much informed by the projects completed while at JBU. When I was in college at John Brown University, I actually directed two short documentaries featuring similar subject matter that this feature-length documentary will feature. And one of the college professors I had interviewed 
said something along the lines of how excluding queer members from our community is not what people who are a part of the kingdom will do and it doesn't make them and I don't know it all kind of comes down to that queer people are meant to be a part of the kingdom we're meant to I don't know take steps towards creating a more inclusive more welcoming space for queer people in Christian environments and so that's kind of what it means just an inclusive welcoming statement that despite your beliefs, um, despite who you are, you deserve to be a part of the kingdom. I think many of our listeners in Northwest Arkansas are familiar with John Brown University, know it's at Salem Springs, know it has, uh, you know, a student body that comes from around the world, knows that it's um, a Christian private school, but may not have gone there or know people who've gone there. So I think some people might be thinking, wait, you were doing short documentary features about being queer at JBU while at JBU, was this at all controversial thing to do while you were there? Yes, it was. Creating these projects, the first one at least, was the most difficult. The first one centers around the queer experience at Christian universities, specifically at John Brown University. Yeah, it was It was for my nonfiction film class. Everyone had to pitch an idea for a documentary film they wanted to direct, and I pitched the idea of Part of the Kingdom. And I ended up getting to create it. And that was really controversial just because my goal with the project wasn't to make JBU look bad or to frame them as a villain or any of that sort of thing. It was just to provide a platform to people on campus who lacked access to one. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it it was tough negotiating with the administration about how I was going to frame them in the project, how I was going to frame student stories, and how, because I wanted JVU to be a part of the conversation, I actually ended up interviewing Dr. Pollard. He decided to participate in the piece, which I was super grateful for. It was awesome. And I guess how I was going to frame the narrative was kind of the biggest issue, and having all of these stories come out from queer members at JBU was something that people were worried about because it could make the school look bad, because they do have covenant guidelines that prohibit same-sex relationships, and so you have to identify with your birth, sex, and gender identity. And so, yeah, it was it was definitely controversial, but I think it was really needed. It also sounds like there were professors and administrators who, well, obviously, you were able to do it. You were able to get Dr. Chip Pollard to participate, so while maybe controversial, it wasn't stopped. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It We faced a lot of obstacles along the way to get it made, but luckily I had a great crew, um, Luke Travis and Isaiah Shalani. It was a crew of three people <laughs> who made the project. 30 minutes long, it was a lot of work, but three people got it done, which is amazing. So, Did it have an on-campus screening? Um, it never did. I tried to figure out a way to have an on-campus screening, but it was during... COVID, Mm. like the semester we came back from COVID, so it was difficult to organize something where we could have a crowd of people in a room watching the project, but it has screened at multiple film festivals. I'm speaking with McKenna Kofer, who received uh, one of the grants from Campus Pride, and it is to uh, help McKenna create a longer film, Part of the Kingdom. McKenna, how how will this project that you're working on now differ from the short project you did at JBU? 
I think that with the feature-length edition of Part of the Kingdom, it's going to kind of combine elements from the first project I did and the second one. The second one featured the queer experience within affirming church communities um, in Northwest Arkansas. So basically church communities that accept, that affirm, that welcome queer members into their congregation. So I have two protagonists who I was very close with while I was at JBU. Um, one of them is an alumni of JBU, and they live this beautiful life. Now they go to an Episcopalian church where that actually married them. They're living this beautiful, quaint little life together. That's, I don't know, something that I feel like a lot of queer people who are in non-affirming spaces can't really picture for themselves is ever being, if you're Christian and wanting to be affirmed within a um, religious community, it's really difficult to imagine that ever being a possibility, but these, my two protagonists have found that, and they came from non-affirming spaces and have had a really difficult, they've faced a lot of obstacles along the way. So it's about their story, as, lo- as well as several alumni from five different universities across the South. So it's a much bigger project. The universities I'm including are Bob Jones, Harding, Liberty, John Brown, and Baylor. So it's going to be an investigation across these five universities, as well as a a diving into our protagonists' lives um, in Silent Springs, Arkansas. Really interesting cross uh, tab there of of universities you're looking at. Baylor, you know, is a a power five sports school. Bob Jones is, I think, one of the most famous, very evangelical uh, private schools in the country. I don't know how far along you are in the examination of each of the five, but do these five, as far as you know, uh, approach queer lifestyles or queer students in different ways? They do, actually. There's different levels of extremism across each of these campuses, and I chose the ones I did for that reason to kind of see how different campuses handle having queer students on campus and why they have um, the limitations they have in place. So, for example, at a university like Bob Jones, it's really difficult to be openly queer. You You can get kicked out for... This is what I've heard from the alumni I've spoken to. You can get kicked out for reasons that are less than just being in a queer relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there's they they all have different levels of constraints against their queer members, and yeah, I find it really interesting how each of them decide to handle that in different ways. So what does it take to make a feature-length documentary? You are right now based in Manhattan. You're talking about places that are in Salem Springs, Waco, yes. Virginia. How do you do this? Yeah, so it's a long process. Um, I basically started out with posting something on my Instagram, announcing that I was in the process of the pre-production phase for this project and was looking to connect with students or alumni from the universities I listed, and it actually spread really far. I found alumni, um, at the very least, from each of the universities that I'm wanting to study. And, yeah, so I started connecting with different people. Um, There's a lot of people on board who want to be either a part of the project or wanting to support us in any way that they can. And so 
yeah, starting it starts out with like outreach, finding who my characters are going to be, figuring out who whose stories I want to dive into in a deeper way. And then the next part of the process has just been applying to grants. I've been applying to as many as I can um, with the help of my assistant director. So I'm just waiting on hearing back from a lot of different grants at the moment. And once I get funding, then I'll be able to start contacting each of the schools and like taking further steps on what it's going to look like. Because me and my assistant director and my sound designer are going to travel to Arkansas and shoot out there. We're trying to navigate if we want to travel to each of the schools and shoot not, most likely not on campus, but in the surrounding areas. I'm speaking with McKenna Kofer. She's working on the feature-length documentary Part of the Kingdom, received a Campus Pride grant to continue that work. I'm curious, McKenna, you grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, correct? Yes, I did. How did you find out about John Brown, and, and what, what led you there? Both of my parents actually went to John Brown University, and so I'd been hearing about it all my life. They never pushed me to go necessarily. They, they thought it'd be... Um, a great space for me, but they wanted me to make my own decisions, decide where, you know, I wanted to end up. And I think the, at the time I was attending this church with a close friend and we had these Sunday night services where we'd all pray together and such. And I was really conflicted about where to go to college. I was looking at schools in Colorado, some in LA, and then John Brown. And somebody at the church told me that Arkansas was going to make my heart beat again. Like it was going to bring me back to life. And so, yeah, it was because there were some parts about living in Colorado that like growing up that were difficult. And so I was looking to start a new chapter and I don't know. Yeah. Come back to life, I guess. So after that person said that it really locked in the idea of like, okay, I think I should go to JVU. Um, at the time I was struggling to understand my own sexuality. So that was a big, reason that I wasn't sure if I should go because I knew I wouldn't be able to explore that further at JBU unless I was doing it kind of in a way that was hidden. So yeah, but I ended up going and I don't regret it at all. It was a wonderful experience. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that you, you did the two short documentaries, including an interview with Dr. Chip Pollard, who's the president of JBU. Do you know if he saw the films? He did. I don't know if he saw the second one, but he was a big part of the review process for the first one, for sure, because he had some say in like how he'd like his interview to be cut, because I also edited the film. Yeah, several different people at different levels of in the hierarchy of administration had a say in how the film was cut and how they'd like it to be put together. Ultimately, it was my decision, but I had to follow some of what they said, especially for Dr. Pollard's interview. I had to be really careful with the way I framed him to make him, to make sure he didn't appear villainized. He was just representing what the university believes in and what their guidelines state. And so, yeah, he was actually really integrated into the editing process, as well as the questions he was asked during his interview and that sort of thing. What is it that attracts you to film and documentary film in particular? Oh, that's such a good question. I feel like with documentary, it's funny because when I first took that class, when I made 
the original part of the kingdom. I really thought I wasn't going to like the class. I wanted to do narrative. I never imagined myself as a documentary filmmaker, but I realized that I, through that initial project, that I have a deep passion for providing a platform for people who lack access to one, and that through sharing our own stories, we can better piece together who we are through the sharing of stories by listening to other people and what they have to share through their own experience. I love studying experiences that I relate to as well as ones that I don't understand. I think it's really crucial to hear stories that are unlike our own lives and to, I don't know, enter different worlds that we are unfamiliar with and to empathize with people who have different lives than we do. And that's, that's the, my biggest goal like with my projects is to provide a chance for healing for people who have been misunderstood as well as to, as well as to yeah, provide a platform for people who don't have access to one and to better understand the threads that piece together who people are. Yeah, because we're all in some ways deconstructing our narratives and figuring out who we are and it's just a lot of fun studying other people's stories and piecing them together and it provides such a rare experience working in documentary because you get to be really vulnerable with people who are at times strangers like a lot of the students I interviewed for my first project I didn't know them very well and they were so generous to offer their stories to me even though they we didn't know each other very well and so it creates this beautiful safe space um, documentary does where you can be vulnerable and trust I don't know it's really an honor to have people put their trust into me when it comes to representing their story I don't know I'm very grateful for what I do it's it's a lot of fun McKenna Kofer is working on the full-length documentary part of the kingdom part of that uh, work is being helped with a campus pride grant that was announced in November. McKenna, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for speaking with us from Manhattan. And when you're in Solemn Springs, give us a call. Of course. Thank you so much. First day of December, first Friday of December, first Becca Martin Brown visit of December. Hello, Becca. You know, every year, people who have listened to us for a long time yes. know that I am going to try to work my way up to three hoes before Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Well, I've been working on Christmas calendars. We're going to talk about a few events that are not Christmas related. Look, Christmas Because is- my ho turned into ugh. <laughs> Christmas is still more than three weeks away, so I think that's fine. Yeah. I, should, I should also tell people you are the arts and entertainment editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Oh, they don't care about that. They, they care do. about the fact that I come here. They, they like that. that. All right. What do we got? There is an artist in residence at UAFS. Mm-hmm. Her name is Katina Bitsikas. And her pop-up exhibition, which is today and tomorrow brings together video and projection mapping and augmented reality 
and performance art and installation and photography, all to talk about the dangers of an herbicide called glyphosate, which among the things it does is mess up brains of fish. And so she has this installation that's the water images, and then she has other things moving through that. This artist-in-residence program is only in its second year at UFAS, and this particular person is an instructor at University of Missouri at Columbia. Okay. So she's been here working on this piece of the exhibit, which will grow up to be a bigger exhibit called Glyphosate Dreams. Two days only, pop-up exhibit, five to eight today, three to eight tomorrow. It's not at UFAS. It's a storefront exhibit. It's at 901 Garrison Avenue. Okay. Of course, it's free. Artist will be there? Artist will be there. She's really interesting. If you want to read more about her, we'll have it We'll have a story in the Free Weekly, and you can also read more at her website, which is katinabitsikas.com. UAFS is also doing a full-length opera. Okay. I, I, do they do this often? No. I didn't think so. They Okay, it's part of their opera and musical theater departments are conjoined. Mm-hmm. And last year, the instructor, Elizabeth Moment, decided she wanted to do a full-length opera. So they did one last year that was a modern-day one. Now they're doing Engelbert Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel. To the best of her knowledge, there has not been a full-length opera before last year at UAFS for at least 40 years. And she is determined that audiences need to learn to love opera. And says Hansel and Gretel is a great start. It's being sung in English, not German. Mm-hmm. No harder to understand the musical theater. Does it require, like, the super whatever they call them that they do in Eureka Springs? Because it's sung in English. The captioning. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't require captioning. And she says the kids, the students haven't seen it all together until recently because there are— Oh, they're working in units. They're working in units. And when they all came together, they fell in love with it. I bet this is on UFAS campus. This is on UFAS campus. This is actually at Breedlove Auditorium. Okay. It's at 7 o'clock, December 5th and December 7th. Admission is free. Admission is free. But you got to get a ticket. you got to go to their uafs.edu season of entertainment and get a ticket and then plan ahead because in the spring, the other side of their opera and musical theater workshop is going to do 9 to 5. Tina, the Tina Turner musical, is coming to the Walton Art Center starting December 12th. And we have a story about it coming Sunday in What's Up. Do you know they have two lead actresses? Playing Tina Turner? Yeah. Not at the same time. Right. But in the same, on the same night? No. So, because it is so physically oh. and vocally demanding. It is very unusual to do to split a show like that. Wow. Both of them say that you have to you have to be in the perfect physical shape, you have to be in the perfect headspace. You have to be in the perfect vocal space to do this. What do you know about is this like her life story? Yes. Okay. But but her hits are throughout it. Yes. But they make the point in the interview they did with our reporter Monica Hooper that it's not just all the bad things that happened to Tina Turner. Sure, sure. It's 
all the triumphs of Tina Turner. Sure. Slightly different, slightly different take on it than a film that was done. Yeah. The Angela Bassett. Film. Yeah. Yeah. And it does have all her hits in it. So this happens starting December 12th. December 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Tickets start at $42 at the Walton Art Center. And there is a private VIP pre-show and intermission package that you can get for an add-on. If yes. you are ready to know everything Christmas. <laughs> yes. I have a Christmas calendar in Sunday's What's Up that it'll take you your entire first pot of coffee to read. <laughs> and and just know that I know there are Christmas parades and lightings going on this weekend. Oh, yeah. That's all in okay. thefreeweekly.com right. and on today's What's Up page. Fair enough. Fair enough. But you know what? What you had for us today, that's great stuff. I just couldn't work my way up to any more ho-hos. I we'll, got you. We'll work on it. We'll, we'll be work there. on we it. we got three weeks. Becca Martin-Brown is the arts and entertainment editor. People do care about that at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. The Ozark Society is a regional conservation organization known for saving the Buffalo National River from being dammed. Members across the state who love rivers and wild lands hike, volunteer, and work toward a common goal of keeping the natural state natural. Information on memberships at ozarksociety.net. The Momentary in downtown Bentonville invites guests to discover art, food, and music, immersive performances and exhibitions, live concerts, food and drinks. There's always something new at Northwest Arkansas's Creative Hub. More at themomentary.org. This is Ozarks at Large. Hamlet was a young man in Denmark around the time the 16th century turned into the 17th. Mercutio was a young man in Verona, about the same time, give or take, caught in the crosshairs of a family feud. They never met until tonight in Bentonville. Northwest Arkansas Community College will premiere Shaken Up, an imagining of several Shakespearean characters sharing the same universe. Damian Dina, an adjunct professor of theater at NWAC, is overseeing the production. It was co-created, he says, by students as an example of devised theater maybe highlighting a message that the text had or, or anything, what, whatever have you. And so there's just so much. And so I really wanted to do this because I've been wanting to bring Shakespeare here also. And I think it would be a fun way for uh, people to be introduced to it. Um, also to see if there is interest in it here. Um, and yeah, to see where it, it went from there. But to, to give uh, these students an opportunity to... Uh, you know, dive in and, and uh, dive into characters that maybe they they haven't had a chance to play, may not have a chance to play, uh, or want to explore, or have always wanted to try something with, um, just anything, and that's what that's what we did. What was the construction of the script like? It, it is a different process than how uh, like one playwright will write a play. Maybe they'll they'll get somebody's input and help with it, but for for most part. Uh, the way it works is, is group writing. So we start with prompts and ideas. The, the, the first thing I had them do was to, first of all, select their characters, any character from Shakespeare, it doesn't matter. They don't have to be from the same plays. In fact, I prefer to them not to be the same plays. Um, but we do have two characters from the same play. Uh, although those two characters never had a scene in their own play together, and this time we actually have one with them. 
Um, and I asked them to gather the lines um, from that, that character, all the lines and monologues that they have in their play. And uh, there was a, a website that we could use called Open Source Shakespeare, and there they do it. They pretty much uh, they divide it and give you the list of lines and monologues and everything, and then we would reshape it uh, and you know put the characters together and see what the dialogue would be with them together. Explored like what what could these two characters want from each other and all the stuff that most playwrights do on their own. We all did it together discussed it, um, tried different things, added some modern language, obviously, to fill in the gaps because I didn't want them to get too bogged down with it. Um, I mean, to get really, like, devised like a Shakespeare Shakespeare, you'd have to be, like, an expert in it. But, you know, th this is their kind of beginning introduction, even though they've, they've had some experience with it. Uh, at a collegiate level, it's a lot different, and when you are having to learn the actual ins and outs of Shakespeare, it's a lot different. So I wanted to give them something that wasn't that too complicated, because you can take the text and make it mean whatever you want, uh, essentially what Shakespeare himself even uh, intended. Uh, we used those and, and used modern language, and uh, we even took some songs and mixed the monologues together with songs, and uh, some of the pieces that, that people will hear are uh, all the monologue pieces are made, are, are created by those students who are saying them. Um, and yeah, so we just started, and it, and it just kind of rolled there, and the story kind of came together, and we kind of had to shape it, and I came in, um, I acted as like a writing coordinator, and took everything they had and shaped it, added some more stuff to give it some flow. Uh, I threw in some scenes myself. Uh, and, and then just created this, this piece, and it, it, we weren't sure where it was gonna go at first, and then the story just kind of unfolds itself as we go along. And then our big end piece is like, yeah, they, they talk to Shakespeare, and uh, you know, no spoilers, but you'll see what happens at the end of that. But yeah, and so we just I just throw him in there too, and, uh, and yeah, and that's kind of how that writing process went. <laughs> Can I ask a really kind of geeky, nerdy question? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Are, are the characters aware? Are they aware of their ultimate fates? I mean, does Hamlet, does Juliet, do they know what awaits them? Or are they removed from those pages? Not to give too much away, but it is part of their introductions. They all come into this at their last moments. So Aaron the Moor in his play, he ends up you know, being hanged. He hangs him, so he's made to hang himself. And so we come in and he, but that doesn't happen. All of a sudden, like, he's just here. Juliet tries to stab herself, but the, the knife is not real, and it just kind of altered in her hands. Uh, Mercutio wakes up, and all these people come out of their, their last moments in their plays. Titania is probably the only one who doesn't actually die in her play, but, like, she still came out of the forest of, and is unaware where she's at. Out of, out of Midsummer. After the end of Midsummer is where we're coming to her with. So everybody is at the end of their scenes, at the end of their plays, and now it's like the what happens after and discovering like that is what happens to me. Why did it happen to me? And can I prevent it? And like, did I bring it upon myself? Some characters have to just like to think about these things. And so it gives them more, more to do and more exploration of the human condition, which is what Shakespeare did. I mean, he wrote all aspects of the human condition. You can find it in every single character he has. And this, we take that to another level and then have them like, okay, well, then happens after that. Now we know what this person's motivation is and why this person is so angry and has all this pain inside them. Now what do they do with that? Instead of just dying, because they don't die anymore, what do you, what, what's beyond that? How do we handle that? 
uh, and where do we go from there? You mentioned that it could be an introduction to Shakespeare, so you do not have to come into this knowing these plays left and right. No, and in fact, some of these people already know. I mean, everyone knows Titus Andronicus. We've seen a couple of iterations. Julie Taymor's is the very famous one. Um, A lot of people know Hamlet. There is a thousand iterations of Hamlet. We should all know who Hamlet is. We should all know who Mercutio and Juliet are. We all should know who Cleopatra is. Um, and even, even if Titania is a little bit uh, obscure, which she shouldn't be, she is kind of a, a sort of major character in Midsummer. Uh, not as much, though, which is why in this one it's interesting she's now more of a ma- major character than she is even in her own play. And in fact, there is little tidbits here and there, like people do read, like, tell, because we're telling each other stories, because we're introducing ourselves to each other. It gives a little bit of a salute, uh, it gives us the freedom to go ahead and just throw it in there. So Hamlet, or Juliet, is like telling Hamlet about what her and Romeo did, and it's him, it's him being very like, wow, you were, wow, you were so brave to actually just do something that crazy. And then Hamlet, uh, you know, having to tell everybody about what happened to him, and, you know, and then Mercutio just existing and seeing what kind of person he is and having to deal with himself. Um, so yeah, you, you, you get to see the characters, and you get to learn a little bit about them, in case you don't actually know about that. So you will get information. And and yeah, even in the exploration of the characters, you'll get to see them a little bit. And hopefully with the just little tidbits that we throw in there, it, I think it should be enough to spark people's interest of, really, that's what that character was like? Let me, re- let me see that again. Let me, let me go watch that movie again. Let me go see that play again, read that play again. Uh, I hope it sparks enough interest, because I think we threw enough in there to spark interest. Um, but yeah, you don't have to come in here knowing it. It it, it just kind of speaks for itself. And even so, there's still enough in here that's fun, and it's just you know just a, a great time to have it in in, in a theater, pretty much. And uh, it's also not very long. We don't want to make like we don't want to make like a two-hour Shakespeare show because that's what most are. Most are two hours. They should be at least two hours. <laughs> uh, some are three. Uh, we didn't want to do that either. So we also make it that accessible to, uh, you know, it's, it's like it's an hour 15 maybe, um, which is like, what, two episodes of something on, on Netflix or anything. And that's, that's pretty easy for people to digest. And it's just a really good time for everybody to have. Next year, you could do the sequel. There's Macbeth. There's Othello. There's all kinds of folks if, who could still be there. If, we, if, if, this, <laughs> if this is successful, which I, I'm optimistic it will be, um, it already is. Um, just getting this far and doing what we're doing now is, is pretty successful. Uh, if there is a want for it again, I'm down to do it. I'm down to throw other characters and maybe try something different, maybe a different story, maybe just a night of, of Shakespeare sketches. I don't know, something fun. Uh, I want to bring fun because, you know, we, we have, well, there's already enough shows out there. There's already enough plays where, you know, we have downers and stuff like that, which is fine. And we do have serious moments. Don't get me wrong. There are serious moments here and serious things that people need to work out with these characters. Um, But we also have a lot of fun with it. And I like to bring fun uh, in theater. And, uh, you know, comedy is my jam. So (laughs) um, that's what I wanted to bring here. So we we laugh, we cry, and uh, everything in between in this one. This is Ozarks at Large with me via Zoom, Courtney Lanning, our film critic. Courtney, welcome back. Kyle, thank you for having me. We're going to talk a new Godzilla this week. 
Yes, it's time to talk about giant atomic monsters. All right, this is called Godzilla Minus One. And there are two kinds of, well, there are many kinds of Godzilla films. You know how there was that recent thing that came out that men think about the Roman Empire X times per week? I think about Godzilla X times per week, I have to admit. So there are American <laughs> there are American Godzilla films, there are Japanese Godzilla films. This one comes from Japan. Not to be confused with the most recent American Godzilla films. I think they're on they're working on a film number four right now. Mm-hmm. They started in twenty fourteen. But uh there's a new film out today, uh in America at least, but it comes from Japan. It's called Godzilla Minus One, one of the best movies that I've seen all year. Um, It is so much more than a monster movie. This is a film that is packed with human drama and wartime stories and just plenty of monster action. It's philosophical, it's historical, and there's really something that everyone can enjoy, even if you're not a big fan of monsters crashing around and destroying cities. You know, the very first Godzilla movie that came out in the 1950s, not really even much of a decade past you know, Hiroshima and and, uh, Nagasaki being just devastated by nuclear weaponry, it was this cautionary table. Here was this this monster that had been awakened by radioactivity. Where does this fall as far as the role Godzilla plays? Well, I'll put it this way. Um, America, when America borrows Godzilla, we make very different movies with Godzilla than than the Japanese make with their, their version of Godzilla. And it's fascinating to watch and compare the two, especially if you're just talking about the most recent trilogy of, you know, the American Godzilla from 2014 on. American Godzilla is a protector. Uh, This is a monster that keeps humanity safe from other giant monsters. Japanese Godzilla is more of a visceral threat Mm. to humble mankind and remind us that there are greater forces than us and always will be. It's, It's a cautionary tale of war and atomic power and just the the threat that these things can can become monsters um so it's it's really interesting to watch the watch and compare the two you know there have been dozens of godzilla movies some of them are although i watch them some of them are incredibly goofy and some of them are incredibly bad and many of them don't even care really about the human beings in the film humans play a vital narrative role in this yes so this This Godzilla movie is actually set in the final days of World War II. Uh, It centers on a kamikaze pilot named Koichi, who is basically disobeying his orders to not follow through and commit suicide and take out an American target. He lies. He says his plane has some mechanical issues, and he lands on an island. The engineers are like, we can't find anything wrong with your plane, and they quickly realize what he's done. But before much else can happen, Godzilla appears. Godzilla kills everyone on the island except for this pilot and one other engineer. And the rest of the movie is just kind of about dealing with his trauma, um, survivor's remorse, his war PTSD, uh, his Godzilla PTSD, and how he has to sort of work together with uh, the rest of Japan to stop Godzilla from destroying the rest of their nation. The humans are just so compelling in their stories um, because they've already dealt with such horrendous loss and now this giant monster appears and threatens even more. I mean, it's, it's breathtaking at times. I even cried at the end. Uh, that's how oh. powerful the human elements were. After that description, I feel somewhat silly asking this question, but what about the monster effects? I mean, 
Are they good? Of course. Okay. Of course. Um, that's that's the thing that uh, again, when you're comparing Japanese Godzilla films to the American Godzilla films, more recently, of course, the American Godzilla movies have a bigger special effects budget, mm-hmm. so Godzilla looks a lot more hefty. That said, this Godzilla movie looks really good. You feel like you're in late 1940s Japan. The setting is is just right there, front and center. Wartime Japan is almost uh, a central character in this film itself. You can read Courtney Lanning's review of Godzilla Minus One at KUAF.com and OzarksAtLarge.com. What will we talk about next week? Well, we are not leaving Japan just yet. Okay. Uh, next week, there is a new movie out from the big-time director, Hayao Miyazaki, who's known for all of his cartoons, like Kiki's Delivery Service and House Moving Castle. And after almost 10 years, he's got a new movie out called The Boy and the Heron, and we will talk about that. Courtney, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Kyle. At the end of the year, when you make contributions to the organizations that are important to you, please consider giving to KUAF. Listener support is the heart and soul of this station, and your year-end gift will help pay for the programs you counted on this year and will count on next year. You can easily make your gift during our season of giving fundraiser starting Monday morning at 6. You can give online at any time at supportkuaf.com. Thank you. And happy holidays. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Michael Tilley, Jack Travis, Becca Martin-Brown, and Courtney Lanning. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Good week for Razorback basketball this week. It definitely was. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it, it's nothing to sneeze at beating number seven Duke. And then last night, the women beating number 15 Florida State yeah. on the road. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, played really well. So yeah. uh, maybe the SEC is better than the ACC? I, I, think, I, I think the men's was <laughs> seven, seven and seven. And I, I don't, I'm I don't sure know where the, the women are. Was. Yeah, I think they still have some more games yeah. tonight. You know, also playing tonight, Arkansas State and Little Rock men. They're oh, no nice. longer in the Sun Belt together. Right. Right. And so. It's a non conference game these yes, days. Yes. They, they promised that they would keep that going. So that's tonight. That's fantastic. Um, Volleyball tonight, too, starting the NCAA tournament in Barnhill Arena. Wow. Well, there is not a shortage of college sports to keep up with no, here there in the is state. Not. Uh, for uh, Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Callums. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Annie Leibovitz at Work. This exhibition includes the photographer's iconic pictures for Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, and Vogue, as well as new portraits made just for Crystal Bridges. Open until January 29th. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season December 9th with two performances of its annual Christmas concert at Walton Arts Center. Performing a mix of holiday favorites under the baton of maestro Paul Haas, musicians will also be joined on stage by the Sona singers and other guests. Tickets at 443-5600 or sonamusic.org.